back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping, keeping it sports, sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm gonna do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It's time. We're keeping it sports with M3, powered by the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you're all doing well today on this Monday, the 10th day of October. As you can probably tell by now, it's going to be a little bit of a challenge for yours truly's voice today, just based on the fact that I think I damn near came close to blowing out over the weekend between attending a WWE event in Philadelphia on Saturday night and then the Jets game at MetLife Stadium yesterday, I was worried that my voice was going to be pretty much fried coming into today, but I'm going to give it uh, my best try here, going to give it my best effort. You know, a lot better effort than the New York Mets did in their wildcard series over the weekend. And I hate to phrase it like that because, you know, every time I talk about bad things about the Mets, I think it sometimes comes across as me being a jerk, me being, you know, mean old Yankee fan looking down at the poor little Mets fans. But there's no other way to describe this past weekend other than embarrassing, a gut punch, and extremely, extremely disappointing. Because one of the arguments I always hate in sports with any team, with any fan base, especially fan bases who are not used to seeing their teams in the postseason, and it's usually we don't see a lot of times where the Mets are in the playoffs in back-to-back years. It's happened very frequently in their franchise's history, and usually there's years in between postseason appearances. And the last time they were in it uh, before this year was uh, the 2016 wildcard game uh, with uh, Connor Gillespie hitting the three-run bomb off of Jairus Familia. So it's been a little while. But there's always this argument from portions of a fan base after a gut punch, after a heartbreak like this of saying, oh, but think back to your thoughts on your team in the beginning of the season. And if I told you that they were going to win 101 games and be in the postseason at the end of the year, you'd be pretty happy. No. No, I've always been against that kind of argument because you have to change your expectations based on or your feelings on something based on what you're seeing in front of you. You can't just go with your same old 
preseason philosophy. That's why, you know, I look back at the 2017 Yankees and how they weren't predicted to do anything. And then, you know, you fast forward at the end of the year, I was heartbroken when they lost that ALCS to the Houston Astros. And that's the same way any Met fan should and probably does feel today because this is, you know, expectations were risen based on how this season went. The fact that for 175 of the 180 days of this Major League Baseball season, the Mets held the lead in the National League East. At times, there were some people that were arguing, oh, could they end up being the best team in Major League Baseball? And that was coming at a time, remember, when they were without Max Scherzer for almost two months with the oblique. They didn't have Jacob DeGrom for the first three and a half months of the season due to um, the injuries from last year. And it seemed like no matter what happened, this Mets team just kept rolling along, rolling along. You know, they had that big 10 and a half game lead on June 1st that slowly but surely it dissipated. It went away because the Atlanta Braves just turned into a runaway freight train, turned into a team that was winning 75% of their games, winning games at a clip that if they did it over the course of a full season, 114 games. And it forced the Mets with last weekend's heartbreak and uh, embarrassment in Atlanta to now have to do something that I'm sure them and no other Mets fans and no fans in general want to see their team do. Yeah, you want to make the playoffs, but when you have that kind of lead in your division for so long, you want to avoid this wild card format as much as you possibly can. Because even even though you had all three games at home, it didn't fluster the San Diego Padres. It didn't fluster them coming 3,000 miles away. It didn't fluster the, the fact that they were the road team, the team of, that would not have last ups all three nights in this series. And, you know, maybe we should look back on the regular season and see why. This team... You know, even though they only played six times, was clearly better than the Mets during the regular season. They won the regular season series. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that the San Diego Padres won this series. The Met, they are a very good team. They have players that the Mets don't have. They have a Manny Machado. They have a Juan Soto. Who on the Mets is on that level? Who on the Mets is at that caliber? You know, Lindor and Alonso were good, but outside of their home runs on Saturday night, they did nothing in this series. They were MIA for the most part. But that's the story of the second half of the 2022 New York Mets. That is the story of how these last three months since the trade deadline boils down because they've been a team that, you know, they'll have that one big explosive night during a week, but then have to win the rest of their games based on their pitchers throwing gems. 
And for the second straight weekend, you had your rotation lined up the way you wanted. You had what you thought were your three big horses available to you. And they couldn't get the job done. No, Max Scherzer on Friday night, whether it's, excuse me, the injuries of the last couple of months or, you know, the length of the season and so many innings pitched on that 38-year-old body catching up to him. Or it's just the Padres have great players. I mean, they have four bombs off of him on Friday night, and the Mets, you know, seemingly kept getting dealt left hooks that they could not get up from. And, you know, their offense was not able to supply any of a threat, any of a challenge toward you Darvish that the Padres were doing to Max Scherzer. So, and, you know, that what was confounding about this series is the way Buck Showalter was handling things. And I'll get to what he did last night in a, in a minute or two. But why he's always got to play the man of mystery, always got to play this, like, oh, he's got to be the smartest human being in the room. You know, Jacob DeGrom, it should have been announced from the onset that he was starting game two on Saturday night. Shouldn't have been this this game of well we'll make that decision based on what the outcome of game one is. It's almost like they were already looking ahead to the Dodgers. And as great as the Dodgers are, the San Diego Padres deserve a lot more respect than uh, you were seemingly giving them coming into this series. And you know you weren't going to be fooling us. Now, whether it's you win game one or you lose game one, Jacob DeGrom had to take the mound. Now, you weren't going to go through this weekend and with your season online without the guy who's been your best pitcher for the last six, seven years taking the mound at City Field at least one more time. And, you know, for the most part, he lived up to the billing on Saturday. He finally got the Mets offense coming alive. The problem is the Padres kept on fighting, kept on you know coming back every time the Mets uh, took the lead early on. That's why you know, I don't blame what he did as far as, uh, and I'm talking about Buck here, as far as going to Edwin Diaz in the seventh inning. Now, I wasn't watching the game, as I mentioned. I was out on Saturday night. But my mindset with that was, all right, he's not asking him to pitch the final three innings here. He's asking him to give him as many outs as possible without uh, taking away potential availability for Sunday night. And at the same time, hoping that while Diaz is shutting uh, the, the Padres down, that the Mets offense comes to life. And you were able to get that. Problem is, then you had Adovino start to try to make a mess of things, and you were forced to use Lugo on back-to-back nights that something typically the Mets have not liked doing historically. But at least they got themselves to Sunday, but you're almost looking at it and you're saying, did Sunday really truly even happen? Did Sunday even exist with... 
you know, the very quiet, very poor, very non-existent of the Mets offense in uh, Sunday night's uh, uh, efforts, if you want to call that. Because for the first time in MLB history, you have a team lose a winner-take-all game at home only recording one hit or less. And credit Joe Musgrove. Joe Musgrove, really good pitcher in his own right. But the Mets, you know, their bats once again went silent and showed the difference between the Mets and the Padres. You know, the Padres, you look at a lot of the damage that is, was going on here over this weekend was coming from the seven, eight, nine spots in the, the order. They batted about 500 over uh, this weekend. While the Mets, after you got past the Lindor, Alonzo, McNeil, uh, Nimmo portion of this lineup, you really weren't getting much. I mean, you saw Starling Marte back out there, and he was battling, but clearly uh, the thumb was still an issue. And the rest of this lineup was a flat-out joke. It goes back to Billy Epler at the deadline, like I said last week, bringing in a lot of spare parts, but not you know that big bat. And that big bat they could have used, he was on the other side of the field with Josh Bell coming up in uh, big spots and getting the job done. You mix that with uh, Chris Bassett and you know what was... You know, normally I wouldn't call a pitcher soft, but that clearly was a soft performance by him based on the fact that, you know, after the game he's complaining about how uh, New York's a tough place to pitch. Well, duh. I mean, I don't know why you keep bringing this up. This isn't the first time we've heard him say this all year. He, it's clear he psyched himself out. It, uh, with how, it wasn't a whole thing of, oh, he couldn't hear the pitch calm thing in his hat. This was, you know, the moment became big, too big for Chris Bassett, and he uh, wiltered under the pressure of the bright lights. Now, the, the other story that comes out of this game, you know, as much as we want to, uh, as baseball fans, as uh, fair, objective fans, want to give Joe Musgrove credit, tip the cap, as well as if you're a Met fan, be pissed off and annoyed by uh, the results of this series is the decision by Buck Showalter last night in the sixth inning going out there and asking the umpires to check Joe Musgrove just because he was throwing harder and had a higher spin rate with his uh, all of his pitches than you, he usually has averaged this year, which I, for the life of me, will never understand how they mentioned that, but I digress. And he came away kind of looking like a desperate man, a desperate manager with that act. Here you've got a guy that we all know is a pretty good pitcher, has been dominant over his last you know, handful of starts, pitching to an ERA of about a half a run in that time frame. And you're going to be going out there in the middle of the game where your team is dead as a doornail, asking for that kind of review when the umpires check the pitchers multiple times throughout the game. 
I don't blame the Padres for then taunting the Mets dugout for Joe Musgrove being pissed off. You know what, you know what last night was? Why he was doing that? You know, the people bring up, oh, they were, they were seeing shiny stuff on his ears. I say this all the time. You know, these analytics, all of these computer-generated stuff in baseball, it cannot measure the human heart. It cannot measure the intensity, the adrenaline that runs through somebody in the heat of the moment, in the heat of battle. Joe Musgrove, clearly, he had a better feel for the moment than did Chris Bassett. He went out there with a killer mindset. He went out there with a, hey, if this is the last game I pitch of this season, I'm going to let it fly and, and, and let things fall where they may. So, no, and we see that from pitchers all the time. In those big moments, they're able to step up and ask their body to do something that they normally don't do or don't do as often in the regular season because in the postseason, it's all on the line. You know, there was no tomorrow for the losing team in this. And that losing team happened to be the Mets, a, a Mets team that, you know, their fan base is heartbroken because it was a fun team. It was a cute team to follow all year long. But at the, the end of the day, this is a team that the 101 wins covers up what was a lot of flaws with this baseball team. Covers up um, that the fact that there's got to be changes with this baseball team. Especially when you look at the fact that a majority of their pitching staff is free agents after this year. Bassett, Lugo, Walker, Carrasco, Diaz, May, Adovino, and that's not even including DeGrom who can opt out. Nemo is the only guy um, of importance on their offense that is a free agent. That's probably someone that they will look heavily into and bring him back. But you know, outside of that or some kind of big tr trade, I think you're looking at a situation where you potentially bring, you know, one of the, at least two of these starting pitchers back, one of the relievers. If, if, if you can't bring back Diaz, you definitely have to bring back Nemo. I mean, bring back Lugo. You bring back at least one of uh, DeGrom or Bassett, one of Walker and Carrasco, and then figure out the, the rest of the spots, whether it's through trade uh, or through, you know, lower signings like one-year deals. Because even Steve Cohen, even for him being the richest owner in this sport, he's even admitted that they're not going to go full-on drunken sailor mode. Now, after a couple, maybe that's comments or words just to say once your season's over, and maybe that changes in a couple of months' time. Maybe they um, go out there and make a big trade and uh, sign Otani to a big extension after trading for him. Who knows? Who knows what their front office could be thinking? But you're not going to see this same team as instituted come back next year. They need to add some depth to this team so that you have 
guys available to pinch hit off the bench. Better options than the likes of Naquin, uh, Vogelback, and and Darren Ruff. You're going to see some of, the, hopefully for their sake, some of these prospects, uh, whether it's Beatty, Alvarez, uh, Vientos, one or two of them stick up here and be regular parts of this lineup. And hopefully for their sake, Max Scherzer um, is able to stay healthier than he was this past year and give them closer to 30 starts. Is, is that asking too much on a guy that's going to be 39 at some point next year? Remains to be seen. But it's going to be a different Mets team next year. That's why it's you know, so frustrating for this fan base uh, today. I said earlier, it was a fun year for them. And you were hoping that this ride ended in a different way. Rather than frustration and aggravation of a very quiet offensive downturn in your ballpark against a team that you won more games uh, than in the Padres, rather than getting ready for a trip to L.A., a trip to face the Dodgers in the NLDS. You're sitting there wondering what could have been if you would have just won one game at Atlanta last week or not got swept by the Cubs in September or won more games against the Pirates in the final month, uh, a month that was supposed to be, up until the Braves series, one of the easiest schedules in the big leagues. Now you're sitting here thinking about what could have been and what does this team need to improve on and get better in next year so you can finally end your what will now be 37-year drought of not winning a World Series. All right, a lot I want to get to today. Going to mix in some football as we go on here. Uh, Some thoughts on both the Jets and the Giants, uh, where they stand in their divisions, some questionable coaching decisions, poor Thursday night game, uh, an absolutely atrocious call in the NFL yesterday that now, I don't know how the NFL can live with themselves on that, even for a regular season game, as well as mixing some more thoughts about the wild card round and the league uh, uh, division series uh, as we roll along here. So plenty to get to in uh, this week's podcast. So glad you could tune in, listen, watch whatever format you're watching on uh, this week. So at this time, as I usually do, Please sit back, relax, put your feet up if, if you feel like it, and continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. I'm not sure what was the worst thing that I saw this week. Now, there were two things that really jump out that, quite frankly, boggle my mind when I saw them. One, of course, was the video that came out via TMZ from 
Golden State Warriors practice last week in which Draymond Green knocked the living crap out of Jordan Poole. Listen, fights happen in practice all the time, so we quite frankly shouldn't be surprised about it. I think the only time you'd only hear about this kind of nonsense happening is uh, baseball, and you know they really don't have quote unquote practice considering uh, it's an everyday sport. But you hear about it um, happen sometimes in training camp in hockey, definitely in training camp in football between teams, uh, between guys on the same team. Uh, and I'm sure there's pushing and shoving that goes on in the heat of battle in NBA practices. But we, when you see something, it brings more of a light on it, and it has you taken back like, damn. And when you watch the video of this, it, it, it initially starts with them drawing back and forth, Draymond stepping up to uh, Jordan Poole, Poole pushing him off, and then he's looking away, and Draymond just comes up right on him and decks him to a point where Poole's just laying there and like, God, what, what could he he have possibly said that set Draymond Green off that badly? And we know Draymond's an emotional guy, but that was that looked completely over the line. And I, remember, I'm a Draymond Green fan. I've always been a supporter of his, but I can't get behind him on uh, this, especially you punch a guy that's not looking at you. It was a awful look for him, uh, especially when you consider everything he's got going on. From he's got a successful podcast. He's uh, the first active NBA player that has a media deal. Remember, he works for TNT during the season uh, when the Warriors are not playing. If he's available on Thursday nights, he's part of their broadcast team. And it's a, a bad look for a guy that has that kind of, you know, uh, jobs, that kind of uh, obligations when he's not available or, or, or taken away by his main job as a, an NBA player. And you know, clearly there's something you know, more than just what Jordan Poole said going on here. Uh, the, that's why, you know, rather than the team suspending him, he's stepping away for a while to work on issues uh, within himself, ho- hopefully calm the matter down and come back a better person. But it's just, you know, you wonder how, you know, A, you hope he get, he gets some kind of help because clearly something is, is mentally wrong here and you don't want him going down some kind of dark path uh, that is a, not just a hindrance or a hurt to others, but a hurt toward him, his personal self. But uh, how's this going to affect this Warriors team? Because as great as Steph is, as great as Clay is, hopefully he's back to his old ways, his second year back from injury. Uh, Jordan Poole, an emerging star there. Now, you can make the argument that Draymond Green is the first or second most important player on that team. His ability to play defense at four different uh, spots, uh, the fact that he can be the point guard for this team late in the game and, and get Steph Curry off uh, the ball handling. He's just a, a been a very important, very key 
part of this team winning four titles in the last eight years. And now I'm looking to go on another run here, another chance at repeating. How's this going to affect this team? So, but most importantly, as I said, I hope he gets help he needs. But that's as far as like, no, bad off the court. Bad on the playing field. The worst thing I definitely saw this week as far as, <coughs> excuse me, on the field action was the nonsense that went down yesterday between the Bucks and the Falcons. Because here you have the Atlanta Falcons have been interesting. They've been kind of a, a scrappy, feisty team. They've been in pretty much every game they've played this year at the very end, that is. They've either had a big lead and blown it like they did against the Saints or been down by big and worked their way back into the game as we saw against the Rams a couple weeks ago and now yesterday against uh, uh, the Buccaneers. They were down 21 nothing heading into the fourth quarter and finally started to show some life here. It looked like they were going to get one more crack at things in the final couple minutes. It's a third down. They're down 21-15. Grady Jarrett's able to break through and, and get what looks like a sack on Brady on third down with about three minutes to go. Give uh, the, the Falcons the football back. And referee Jerome Boger throws the flag, calls a roughing the passer penalty. That I'm sitting there showing this on the big screen at MetLife. I'm looking... How the hell is that roughing the passer? How in the world can any human being look at that and say, that's roughing the passer? He wrapped his arms around uh, Brady's waist and rolled with him to the ground. It wasn't like he picked him up and body slammed him uh, like he was a pro wrestler. I mean, how else do you want him to tackle him? He didn't go at the head. He didn't go at his knees. He didn't pick him, pick him up and throw him down like a power bomb. This was as clean and textbook a tackle, uh, a sack from a defensive lineman as you could possibly ask for. And listen, I know there's the camp of people, mostly Tampa Bay Buccaneers fans, are saying. Oh, if you're not happy about it, score more than 15 points or don't wait till the fourth quarter for your offense to come alive. But it took, it took any possible chance of like some end-of-game dramatics away from the Atlanta Falcons because it gave the Buccaneers an automatic first down. The, the Falcons were down to only one timeout. And how do you look at... Let's say the Falcons continue having a losing season here. Let's say you know, they're 2-3 and three right now. So let's say they finish 5-11 and 11 and Arthur, or 5-12, and 12, excuse me, and Arthur Blank decides to make a change at uh, the head coaching spot this year and fire Arthur Smith. How do you look at him and say, oops, sorry, because maybe this kind of game could have been a momentum changer, could have been a rallying cry for the Atlanta Falcons, got their season completely turned around. And instead, you took away the opportunity for them from a possible W. And 
quite frankly, it's the same. Now, the one thing that Tom Brady did get right this week, and I'm not talking about his personal life, is where on his podcast he was talking about the overall quality of football uh, played so far this year in the NFL. And he said, quote, I think there's a lot of bad football from what I've watched. I've watched a lot of bad football. Poor quality of football, that's what I see. And it goes back to what I was talking about a couple of weeks ago. These teams, yesterday was like week one for a lot of these teams. They were in week one mode of, of NFL action because now they're officially into a full month of actual games being played. They treat the first three, four weeks of the year like the preseason these days because they're so terrified based on a couple of players that have gotten injured in the preseason over the last couple of years where I look at it and shake my head saying, you got to play these guys at least a couple of reps, at least a couple of series in the preseason. Get them the feel for football. They are not ready for week one, two, or three yet when those games roll around based on how these front offices and coaching staffs treat uh, late July into August uh, these days. That's why we're seeing such poor quality play. These offensive linemen, when you have new offensive lines, makeshift offensive lines, are not together, do not have a cohesiveness. You're seeing a lot of sloppy play offensively. You you look at it like yesterday uh, continued where it was hit and miss with the Green Bay Packers offense out in uh, London. You know, some of these teams that you're not, you weren't expecting much from, you're, you're seeing good offense from them, like Seattle, because Geno Smith had to compete to get his spot in August. So he's already been in an NFL playing mindset for you know, about two months now. He's a, he, he truly feels like he's in week five. Both him and the Saints, why they've played well offensively is they've had competitions. They had battles for spots in uh, the preseason that guys had to earn their keep. So that's why you're seeing you know, Geno Smith off to a good start. You're seeing you know, Taysom Hill have a, a fantastic day with four uh, touchdowns on his own. Those teams who take the preseason seriously are the ones that right now have the most cohesive offense. That's why you 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 look at what's going on in Denver and you wonder what the hell were they doing in training camp? What the hell were they doing in the preseason? And to be fair, my guy Russell Wilson has not looked good. He's quite frankly looked like, oh, he's more toward the back half of his career than the front half. And remember, this is a guy that he's still, what, 33, 34 years of age? He's my age. He's he's right here in, you know, the same time frame of life as I am. And I know he's got, you know, a lot more uh, battle scars on him from playing 10 years in the NFL than I do. But you're not seeing the same rust that you did in Seattle, uh, now with the Denver Broncos. And some of it 
is due to awful decision-making by Nathaniel Hackett. But when you watch Russ on Thursday night and you're seeing some of the stuff that he's doing in the fourth quarter uh, with uh, as bad of interceptions as you could ask for, you know, one you know, throwing to uh, Hamler in uh, the end zone early in the quarter when looked like they were in great position uh, to uh, really put their foots on the Colts' necks. And then late in the game, all you needed to do was get the Atlanta Falcons to use up their timeouts. You had a three-point lead. You were going to win a very ugly, hard-to-watch game uh, 9-6. And he throws a pick to Stephon Gilmore with reasonable enough uh, field position for even Matt Ryan to drive them down uh, to uh, set up a game-tying uh, uh, field goal, force overtime. And then in overtime, he you know, completely whiffs. He has the ball in his hands with a chance to win the game and misses Cortland Sutton on that fourth and one attempt at the Indy 5-yard line. And I respect the fact that they didn't just you know take the field goal there. They tried to go for the win because the easy call would have been, oh, go for the field goal. And at worst, you have a, a 12-12 tie. You know, something that, quite frankly, both these teams deserve to have be the outcome, deserve to have be the finish of this game when you consider how much they wasted our times uh, with this game on Thursday night. But it's it's not been a great start to the season for Nathaniel Hackett, Russell Wilson, or the Broncos all in general, especially when you look around that division. You look at that, that div- division – you know, and it remains to be seen what Kansas City and Oakland do tonight. But Kansas City, for the most part, their offense has been on lockdown. The Chargers, you know, each and every single week, Herbert has been lights out. No matter if he's battling injury, if he's without teammates, he's been giving his, his team a shot each and every week. It's his head coach, Brandon, uh, Stoke, Brandon Staley, who needs to get his head out of his rear end and uh Stop going for all these damn fourth downs. And yesterday, he almost cost them with the fact that he calls for a fourth and one play on his own 46-yard line with about a minute and change left, trying to be the smartest guy in the room. When that failed, it left the Browns an opportunity to come down and win the game on a, a walk-off field goal. And they, they have to be counting their lucky stars that for the second time in the last three weeks, Cade York uh, screwed up a late-game uh, special teams play, uh, missing a game-winning field goal with uh, with a few seconds to go. But, you know, the, the Wilson, whether he's battling some kind of injury or, or not, or... You know, Nathaniel Hackett and him aren't seeing eye to eye, or it's still the rookie growing pains as a head coach for Nathaniel Hackett. Broncos got to get their heads out of their rear ends uh, sooner rather than later if they want to stay in the, the mix for the AFC West and potentially an AFC wildcard spot. It's still early, there's still time for them to get uh, going, but as we say all the time in sports, 
it can get very late, very early. You don't want that happening uh, to you when there's only 12 games left now in this season. All right, going to take another break here, come back on the other side, look at what some of the locals did uh, yesterday. Now, not just Jets and Giants, but an exciting day as it was for both the Bills and the Eagles as well. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. I hope for the most part that all of you who are either listening or watching this podcast have been able to understand what I've been saying this week. As you can tell, I've had a raspy voice from events that I attended over the weekend, and when I do this podcast each and every single week, I try to be as clear and coherent as possible and as understandable as possible when I talk to you guys. has been a little bit of a battle with uh, this raspy voice I'm uh, currently dealing with here, but hey, never apologize for having fun. As long as it's not anything harmful to you personally, disrespectful to anyone you know or anyone in general when it comes to religious or uh, potentially race stuff, as long as it doesn't affect any of that or disrespectful in any way, have at it. You know, you only get one life here, people. Live it up. And that's you know, exactly what the two football teams have been allowing their fa- in this area have been allowing their fan bases to do so far this season is live it up, enjoy life. Be happy to be a football fan because it's uh, I, I I'll be totally transparent and honest here. I did not think we would be sitting here second Monday of October and talking about the New York Jets and New York Giants preparing themselves for relevant months of the month of October. 
Now, you look at the Giants coming into this year with so many questions, so many questions about the quarterback uh, in Daniel Jones, uh, a rookie head coach in Brian Dable, the, the fact that you, you weren't <laughs> sure about a lot of uh, pieces in this offense. How was this offense going to be run? They were a team that was, quite frankly, lacking in talent. And the last couple of weeks, they've been lacking in wide receivers. I mean, Kadarius Tony's been in and out of the lineup. Uh, Kenny Galladay, let's face it, he's only around to get a paycheck these days. And, you know, the Giants and, and him are both counting the days until that marriage can uh, be broken apart without it costing the Giants too much on the cap because he's been an awful, embarrassing signing. Uh, thank you, Dave Gettleman. But even with all that happening... We sit here five weeks into the season, and the Giants are 4-1. and one. I mean, There's an argument to be made that they could be 5-0, and oh, but hey, you don't want to get too, too greedy. And yesterday, for them to go on the road and defeat the Green Bay Packers is a great win. Now, you do have to take into a little bit a caveat here. They did not have to face... The, the daunting, the sometimes daunting effects that is the frozen tundra in Lambeau Field because you know, the game was taking place at 9.30 um, London time uh, across the pond. So both teams uh, were essentially playing a neutral site game here if uh, you're being perfectly honest here. And it would have been very easy for the Giants to just pack this game in earlier. And they were down 20 to 10 at halftime. We're getting much going with this offense. But their defense, which has been you know, really good this year, even despite some injuries, uh, especially with uh, Leonard Williams, stepped up big time in the second half. And you know, the only points that the Packers were able to score in that second half were on the the late safety that the Giants took uh, to uh, run out the clock there a little bit. They were even getting a ton of pressure on Rodgers late in this game, so much that he wasn't able to get that final heave off. You know, how many times have we seen it in his career where Aaron Rodgers will end the night with one of those big Hail Marys and somehow, some way, some some nondescript uh, wide receiver comes down with it for a walk-off win from. We've seen it a bunch of times throughout his career. But the Giants were able to get enough pressure on him and uh, not allow that one final opportunity. And like I said, you look at the Giants. You know, that. They're running out there, you know, a bunch of ham and eggers at wide receiver right now. The only respectable weapons that Daniel Jones has to work with are uh, Slayton and Barkley. And Slayton, he even uh, missed some time in this game. You thought that he uh, was uh, going to give uh, some alarm, some pause to this good vibe, this good momentum for the Giants by leaving with that shoulder injury, but he was able to come back in and finish this game. And 
Now you're sitting here, you know, even despite what the Twitter universe wants to say, uh, you know, after that game, the words worst four and one team were trending across Twitter. And of course, everyone was talking about them. But hey, don't apologize about winning. Be excited. Be happy. Live it. Live it up. Live in the moment. You know, you're building yourself up enough breathing room right now that if there is a moment where things start to falter and that moment will come where you, you know you're not going 16 and one i i still question whether this team is going to be a 10 win team or be a playoff kind of team when it's all said and done but you've built yourself up enough that you wouldn't be even if you went on a two three game slide that you wouldn't be completely out of the mix of things and you'd be able to turn things around much easier. Wouldn't have the pressure of the world on you thinking that, oh, we've got a lot of making up to do. You've built yourself a solid foundation to start this season and doing it with a lot of guys that you know, are not Joe Shion or not... Brian Dayball guys, as they start to integrate such a change up this roster, not just this year, but in the years to come, this kind of season is a good building block for the Giants and getting their uh, franchise back to true respectability. And this good start, it's it's allowed them to uh, keep pace with what were thought to be you know, the big boys in the NFC East. And I think everyone knew that the Washington Commanders would be an outright disaster and that Carson Wentz was going to Carson Wentz the place up. But you're looking up and you're seeing both Dallas at 4-1, and one, now winning uh, their fourth straight uh, yesterday uh, thanks to another dominant defensive uh performance in LA against the Rams and Micah Parsons continuing to look like the runaway candidate for defensive uh, player of the year. No, I mean, when you win a game with your quarterback only throwing for a hundred yards, it, it shows that, you know, a lot of things are going right for you. And then you, you look at what's going on in Philly as the Eagles are off to an astounding 5-0 and start after uh, yesterday's uh, tug-of-war battle in Arizona that, you know, if Colin Murray and Cliff Kingsbury had a little better uh, uh, awareness, a little bit better uh, a read on the feel of the game, maybe we'd be talking about an overtime game here. Because, I mean, you look at it, in the final couple minutes of that game, you wonder what the hell is Kyler Murray thinking? He's, and the final the final drive of decision making it should tell all you need to know about why originally the Arizona Cardinals put in a clause in Murray's contract that he had to have four hours of independent study each week. Because the, the, the Cardinals had a first down at Philly's 34-yard line with about 30 seconds to go. Out of timeouts here. Murray spikes the ball. Okay, fine. You stop the clock there. But then on second down, he's got a clear 
run right up the middle, and he slides one yard before the first down marker, making it a third and one, and he once again spikes the football rather than running a play there. And I get there's the whole concern about all oh, the clock running out before setting up uh, for uh, another spike, but like we saw what happened to Dallas last year in the postseason. But you had one yard to gain, and you s- slide too early. He's usually got a better feel for, you know, as far as field awareness is concerned there. And then you, you see Matt Amendola, because they spiked it on third down, they had to go right for the field goal there. And Matt Amendola did Matt Amendola things and missed a game-tying field goal that kept the Eagles' uh, undefeated run alive. And you know now, if you're the Giants, if you play your cards right, now you look at it, you're playing the Ravens next week. And the Ravens just eked one by last night against uh, the Bengals on Sunday Night Football. And just barely squeaked this one out. Neither, neither team really rewrote the record books with how they played uh, offense in uh, this game. But if you're the Giants, you look at the Ravens and you say, yeah, they got a very good defense, but so do we. If we can at least not let Lamar destroy the game, we could be sitting here a week from now with the Giants in first place in the division because the Eagles and Cowboys, they play on Sunday night. Cowboys knock off uh, the Eagles all three of these teams could be 5-1 and one a week from today. And if, if you're the Giants and you're in a three-way tie for first place in the NFC East six weeks into the season, what more can you ask for? You had no expectations, no high level of belief in this team coming into the season. And now a chance to be in first place in the final uh, weeks or the first several weeks of the year, nothing more you can ask for. All you ask for for your team, give us a shot. Give us a a reason to believe. No, not think weird, kooky stuff. I think it's too early for the weird, kooky thoughts. That's, That's more of if you get into December and you're something like, Oh, nine and three, and you're staring the the postseason down. That or you get into January and you know you're ten and four or ten and three, and uh, you're two weeks away from potentially making the postseason. Then you could start thinking weird stuff. Then you could start thinking, hmm, what, what do we have here? But for right now, you'd be excited. You'd be happy. Your team's off to the great start. And you once again never, and I mean never, apologize about winning. You know, the same thing, same thing goes for my Jets. You know, I'm sitting there at MetLife yesterday, 
And let's face it, it was 50-50 as far as the fan base is concerned. It was a packed crowd, but you could see a lot of teal in the, that crowd, a lot of orange in that crowd. When, when the Dolphins were doing things early and starting to come back into the game after the Jets had uh, the early 12 nothing lead, you could hear the Dolphin fans. They were alive. They were loud. They were uh, rambunctious, just like the Jet fans uh, were. Now, you, you start to have that sense of the, the old rivalry that these two fan bases used to have. But finally, the Jets you know, were able to get that signature win at home. Now, maybe the word signature win is too strong too early. But it, it's been three, it had been three years since they beat a division opponent. The last time they won a division game was against these Dolphins in December of 2019 when Brian Flores was still the head coach of this team. It's the first time that the Jets have been over 500 in over five years after five games. And you're looking at this team, you're excited as all hell with what you're seeing from this New York Jets squad. First off, you know, Sauce Gardner set the tone early on when he knocked Teddy Bridgewater out of the game with that safety in the end zone uh, that uh, left Teddy unable to continue. And you have some guy uh, named uh, Thompson come and and you could clearly see that the, the Dolphins had no confidence in this guy throwing the football down the field. That's why a lot of their offense was runs right up the middle or short checkdowns to you know, either Waddle or Hill. Um, although you know, they were getting uh, put in uh, lockdown mode if they had to go up against Sauce. But you saw the Jets' defense, even though it bent a bit there, allowed Miami to get back in the game, they were able to lock things down, were able to get pressure when necessary. I mean, you know, the John Franklin Myers and Carl Lawson off the edges made life tough for this kid when he had to drop back. They had more hits on the quarterback than the Dolphins had altogether against Zach Wilson. Uh, and uh, now offensively, you're looking at the Jets here. This is now six out of the last seven games in which Zach Wilson does not have a turnover. And a lot of that is because you know, Zach is not forcing it anymore. Zach is not going out there trying to play this like it's Madden the video game. He's taking what comes to him. And he's taking advantage of the fact that he has two running backs that could catch the football and and run within their own right. We, we knew Michael Carter could do that last year, but Brees Hall has added a level of electricity, a level of excitement to this offense. So that even when you know you're not able to take the shots uh, with Corey Davis, with Garrett Wilson, or Elijah Moore, who was relatively quiet yesterday. You have these running backs that can be those options for you that even if something looks like a, uh, a little check down, they're able to explode and make it into big chunk plays. You know, all game long, it's, it seemed like Brees Hall was breaking off big long runs or uh, runs after the catch and setting up uh, Michael Carter 
for one to two yard touchdowns. These guys wrecked havoc, had a true impact on on the game yesterday, and they got helped out by the fact that their offensive line was stronger than it's been in recent weeks. He finally got Dwayne uh, Brown uh, back off the IR, which never thought we were going to see him again. And then you saw the continued, um, uh, the you know, thing of Eliza Vera Tucker, his versatility, his ability to move around in that offensive line and play four different show that he could play four different spots on there was a huge help for this team. And now we're sitting here with the Jets set to go to Green Bay next week with them over 500 after five weeks for the first time in a long time. You start, as I said, you don't start thinking kooky things, but if you're both a Jets and a Giants fan today, you're happy. You're excited. You're realizing that, hey, Going into Halloween, we've got relevant football in this area for the first time in a long time. It's not just, oh, we're looking up at the Eagles if you're a Giants fan. You're not just looking up at the Buffalo Bills as they have another video game-like performance against the Steelers. And congrats to who anyone who was betting or had uh, Josh Allen and Gabe Davis in fantasy football in the first half yesterday with the shows that they put on. But with both the Jets and Giants, live in the moment, live it up, be happy, be excited that you have relevant football here, both with both teams, both fan bases, and it's something we have not been able to say a lot in the last decade. All right, going to take another break here, come back on the other side, and finish things up. Take keep the sports with M3. I'll be back. I didn't know whether I was going to be able to fit this next story in. Didn't know if there was going to be enough time in the podcast this week, but I guess I'll give a, a minute or two of thought on uh, this one that is... No, I don't know if I should take sides on this because, quite frankly, you know, neither of these guys ever played for the franchise I root for, the Brooklyn Nets. And while I have a great amount of respect for both of them, I, for the life of me, cannot understand... I don't know if you want to call it a feud, a rivalry, beef, whatever it is, but whatever we're calling this that's going on between LeBron James and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Like it, it, quite frankly, it borderlines on like confounding, confusing, because as we all know, LeBron is about to pass Kareem this year for the all-time scoring record. Now, if he continues the pace he's been on over the course of his career, an average of over 27 points a game, which he's shown no signs that uh, that won't happen, 
he would only need about 49 games uh, this year to pass Kareem. And I'm sure it's going to be a phenomenal moment, a moment that you see the game get stopped and a long, well-deserved standing ovation for LeBron when he completes this feat. But there's been this beef between these two, mostly coming from seemingly Kareem the last couple of years, that I don't know if it's about potential envy or jealousness that LeBron's about to break this, or if it's just off of personal differences and philosophy in life. But I'm surprised that this is catching the light of day publicly so much. Personally, I wish for the two of them's sake that they would keep it in-house and talk about it like men rather than it be this he said, she said kind of thing throughout the media because, you know, it, it popped up once again last week when LeBron was asked about uh, uh, chasing Kareem's scoring record and if they have a relationship. And LeBron, you know, very unemotionally goes, no thoughts and no relationships. And he uh, uh, would then expand upon that and and, and saying, I, I think uh, the money quote here, after he talks about how cool it, it would be uh, to uh, break this record, saying, quote, obviously Kareem has had his differences with some of my views and some of the things I do. But at the end of the day, to be able to, be in the same breath as the guy that wore this same uniform, a guy that was a staple of this franchise, I think is super duper dope uh, just to be in that conversation. No, why does it have to be about that between these two so publicly? No, and I don't blame LeBron for coming out and making those comments because Kareem started this with the comments that he had against LeBron. Yeah, it's it's okay for two grown men that are in different generations from the same profession to not have a close relationship. I mean, LeBron and Michael don't have exactly a close relationship. LeBron and Kobe didn't have a close relationship, and they were contemporaries. They played a, a majority of each other's careers together, but... but in the couple of years before Kobe's unfortunate passing, and they started to develop a relationship and uh, develop a brotherly-like bond. But Kareem ha- is the one that has started this, came out first with the shots toward LeBron, uh, saying uh, uh, that LeBron... Uh, his views of LeBron uh, over his uh, career, some of the things he's done, he should be embarrassed about. Saying that him him as an early advocate for the uh, COVID-19 vaccines, he was criticizing LeBron for on social media equating COVID-19 to uh, the flu and the common cold. Remember, LeBron posted that meme of the three Spider-Men, one of them being COVID, one being the flu, and one being the common cold, all pointing the finger at each other. It's a common you know, meme or gif or whatever you want to call that on social media. 
But no, I, I don't understand why he had to be so public about it. If he, if you have a problem with what the guy said, rather than throw it out there in the media, have a chat with him, talk with him. Hey, listen, I don't think that what was cool. I want to hear your view about that. I want to hear uh, your feelings about that so I can get a better gauge on what you were thinking. Are you serious about this or are you just trying to pass that along as a poor, what seems like in Kareem's mind, a poor received joke? And now, he, he said that the, things like that are a blow to his worthy legacy. And now that unless you see LeBron commit some kind of act of violence toward a woman or child or hurt or kill somebody or hurt or kill an animal. I don't know how you could say that something is a blow to the great legacy he's built in in the NBA, something you know, off the court like that. Well, I may disagree with his decision to post that meme, it shouldn't affect who he is as a basketball player. And now, you know, he also he gave him high expect high credit for uh, uh, you know what he does with uh, that I promise school, but uh, he would come out and say some of the things he's done and said are really beneath him as far as I see. Versus some of the great things he's done, standing on both sides of the fences almost. It makes it hard for me to accept that. When he's committed himself to a different take on everything, it's hard to figure out where he stands. You got to check him out every time. The, you know, have the talk with him. Have a conversation with him. Ask his opinion on this. Don't make it a media conversation because then, like I said, it turns into a whole big he said, she said thing that we're talking about every single day that it's, it's not an us issue. It's a between you two, a, two grown men who have two seemingly different views on certain stuff should be able to sit down and have a chat, have a conversation about it without bringing other people into it. At least the way that's the way I would have handled it or you no, know, I've handled personal griefs in the past. All right, so we're now on to the league champ, league division series in Major League Baseball. As the field has whittled down from starting at 12 teams to now you get only eight teams as the one and two seeds uh, in both leagues. The Dodgers, Braves in the National League and the Astros and Yankees, respectively, in the American League get back into the play of things here. And you can look at it as one of two ways. You know, rest and you got to line up your starting rotation the way you wanted or, or rust as you're going up against, you know, you have three teams here coming into this next round that... Yeah, they got an extra day off based on sweeps, but they're riding high. They're riding momentum. You know, you look at the Mariners, they're riding high on the fact that Castillo was dominant in his first postseason start, and they were able to work their way back from an 8-1 deficit against the Blue Jays on Saturday afternoon to uh, the, you know, break Toronto's heart in a... 10-9 win. I mean, 
Yeah, you start to see it slowly but surely happen in the sixth with the Carlos Santana three-run homer that got them back in the mix of things. Then they tied the game on the double by J.P. Crawford in uh, the eighth before Adam Fraser uh, gave the lead in uh, the ninth inning. Allows them to advance in the postseason, get their first postseason wins in over 21 years, and now have sitting and waiting for the one seed, the Houston Astros. Whereas, you know, the Indians, it's weird, you know, they won this series based on great pitching and uh, timely hitting. Something you need in the postseason, but whether it was the Rays pitching staff or just them lacking firepower, their offense left a lot to be desired in this series. And yeah, you got great performances by Shane Bieber and Tristan uh, McKenzie, but you're not going to be able to go back to either one of those guys until games two and three uh, respectively here. And now you're going up against a Yankee team that started to wake up offensively in uh, the last couple of weeks. So we'll see how these teams handle you know, the, the rust versus rust aspect of things and whether these hot uh, weekends by both uh, the Guardians and uh, the Mariners can carry over here into the next round. Now, the Phillies... Now, they also got a, a sweep here, but you're going to be looking at, based on the schedule here, them having to wait till uh, Friday to get either of their top two guys back in the series unless they are uh, planning on Zach Wheeler going on short rest to uh, start this series. And you look at the way that they... they did the scheduling for this. I, I, it's kind of confounding, kind of weird as far as I'm concerned. They've never done this before with the, the League Division Series. But you have, in the NL side of things, Game 1 and 2 will be on Tuesday and Wednesday. Then Thursday is an off day. And then Games 3 through 5, if they go uh, the full 5, will be Saturday through Sunday. No day off there, no travel day. So you'll be going potentially from playing a game four in one series one night to playing a, a game five back in the original series the next day. And the, the only thing that helps here is the fact that on that side of things, the two West Coast teams are playing each other and the two East Coast teams are playing each other. And no, it's not much of a, a travel on the AL side of things either, but theirs is just as weird. You, know, you, you look at game one on Tuesday, then an off day on Wednesday, game two on Thursday, Friday's another off day before games three through five, if it goes the full length, would be Saturday through Monday with no day to travel uh, for the going from uh, potentially Cleveland back to New York as well as Seattle back to Houston. And, and those are you know, not the worst trips in the world, at least the, the Cleveland back to New York kind of thing, but 
I don't understand the need to change things up like that. You should have just done game one, two, day off, game three, four, if necessary, day off, then game five. You had the time to get it in. You, you know, and it's the same amount of off days in the series as it is. I and mean, now people who have a much higher pay grade than me clearly somehow, somewhere thought thought that this was a smart idea you know, how to do things here. To me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But hey, I'm just in a, to hopefully watch. Our New York Yankees win another championship. Continue the momentum, the good vibes after this week of Aaron Judge finally hitting home run number 62 and setting a new single-season record in the American League and in Yankee franchise history. It's going to be fun here. It's not going to be easy. It wasn't going to be easy no matter who the opponent is. But it's going to be fun to watch uh, this series and these series all together. And I'm looking forward to getting it started. You know, after watching six months of your team play, now going a- almost a week before they play a playoff game, kind of had me you know, wondering, all right, what do I do? What do I watch on TV tonight? But thankfully, it's finally all going to get started tomorrow, and hopefully things break right. It's been a long time, long time for this franchise since they won championship number 27. And I know it's easy to say, oh, you've seen five titles in your lifetime. The team's won 27 in their franchise history. But of the teams I root for, the Devils, the Brooklyn Nets, the Jets, as much as I want to see them win a Super Bowl. The Yankees are my favorite team. The Yankees are number one for me. And hopefully this is finally the year for them to get off the snide. For both getting past their postseason demon the last couple of years of the Houston Astros and potentially winning their first World Series championship since 2009. And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports with M3 for Monday, October 10th, 2022. Everyone, please have a great night. Have a fun, safe, healthy, happy week, whatever you may be doing. And I'll talk to you guys again same time next week. Until then, peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to smell you. Now leave. I'll be back.